Um, good afternoon, everybody. I'm sorry I have to remain seated. I hope you can uh, see me and hear me. Um, I'm, I'm basically, by nature, um, a half-glass-full person. And when I look back over the last 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, while there is room for disappointment and um, a certain amount of disillusionment, I do think that we've come a very great distance, even in the human rights area in that period. Um, there has been a lot of conflict, not just between political parties in Northern Ireland, but even within the human rights communities in Northern Ireland over um, how best to protect human rights in the last 25 years or so. And what I want to do today is give you some thoughts on how we might adopt a more consensus-based approach to the development of human rights. I'll begin by reflecting on what's been done since 1998. Um, some things have been done directly as a result of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Uh, Rory has, has mentioned some of these already. Uh, I'll go through them briefly. The establishment of the Human Rights Commission and of the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland, the Section 75 duty uh, to uh, have regard to equality of opportunity, etc., um, the signing of the Charter for, the, uh, uh, for Minority and Regional Languages, the steps that have been taken to help victims of the Troubles and, although not directly related to the Good Friday Agreement because they resulted from commissions that were, were set up after the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the reforms to policing and to criminal justice, that, that they're all relatable to the Good Friday Agreement. But actually, when you look at the legislation that's been passed since 1998, both here and in Westminster, a great deal of that uh, legislation has protected rights despite the Good Friday Agreement or in a way that's not related to the Good Friday Agreement. And I've divided those measures that have been taken into six different categories. You can also categorise them in regard, with regard to the types of rights that have been protected, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But basically, there are six different ways in which rights have been protected other than by direct, uh, with, with direct regard to the Good Friday Agreement. Firstly, there, there are the measures that were uh, brought in because they were already in the pipeline when the Good Friday Agreement was reached. So the, the Fair Employment and Treatment Order of 1998 was going to happen anyway, even if the Good Friday Agreement hadn't been reached. It, it uh, amended the, the laws on religious and political discrimination. The um, establishment of the Police Ombudsman's Office was already in the pipeline uh, because that was created under a, a report written by Morris Hayes back in 1997. The reforms to parading were coming in after the North Report of 1997 as well, leading to the Public Processions Act. There was whistleblowing legislation going through, uh, which was uh, uh, finalised in 1998 for, for employees who wanted to blow the whistle. And most importantly of all, of course, there was the Human Rights Act of 1998, 
which was a UK Act that was always going to come into force in Northern Ireland, even if the Good Friday Agreement had not been reached. What the Good Friday Agreement did as regards the Human Rights Act was to entrench it a little bit more in Northern Ireland than in the rest of the United Kingdom, because uh, if we are ever denied our European Convention rights, which are protected under the Human Rights Act, that would be a breach of the Good Friday Agreement and of the Anglo-Irish Treaty that, was, uh, that accompanied the Good Friday Agreement. Then there was a whole suite of measures taken by the Assembly itself over the last 25 years, even though it has been out of action for about 40 per cent of that time. Um, I could not possibly go through all, all the measures that have been taken. When you, when you see the written paper, you will you'll, you'll get all the detail. But there were measures taken on workers' rights, because employment law was, the, was devolved to the Assembly, unlike in Scotland and Wales. Welfare rights, where we kept pace, more or less, with the developments uh, in Great Britain on welfare rights. In fact, we went further in some respects after the, um, the uh, austerity measures were brought in uh, by the, the Conservatives and Lib Dem government in 2013-2014. In we had mitigation measures put in to make those austerity measures less, um, uh, less um, impactful in, in Northern Ireland. There have been family rights um, protected, uh, parents, parental leave, etc. Children's rights through a Leaving Care Act, through a Safeguarding Board Act, through a Children's Services Cooperation Act through autism acts. There have been health rights protected, uh, the Health and Social Care Reform Act, which set up the Patient and Client Council, the, Act, uh, the Health Miscellaneous Provisions Act, which controlled the sale of nicotine and imposed a sugar levy. Even something like the Hospital Parking Charges Act helps people who have to use hospital car parks a lot whether they are employees of the health service or uh, visiting uh, patients in the, in the hospital. There is a whole suite of education rights that have been uh, protected, uh, rights against bullying, promotion of shared and integrated education, special educational needs legislation. There have been housing rights protected, dealing with landlords' duties and private tenants' rights and homelessness. And there have been environmental rights. Uh, on carrier bags, on protection of wildlife, on rural needs, and most recently on emission targets. And the Assembly has even provided, not even, also provided, for example, for a commissioner for older people and has reformed the law on free speech by uh, updating the, the Defamation Act. Then we've had Measures passed by the UK Parliament whenever the Assembly has not been operational. Um, they have dealt with all sorts of issues, including those eight different categories of rights that I have already mentioned. In addition to that, disability rights have been protected in that way. And on some very controversial issues that could not be passed in this building, Westminster stepped in, as we all know, on same-sex marriage, on abortion on language rights and even most recently on, on organ donations. And dealing with the past is going through Westminster at the moment, uh, very controversially of course, and most human rights activists would not be entirely happy with the, the legacy bill that is going through, but 
let's put it this way, it's an act that would never have been passed by the Assembly here because there couldn't be agreement between the politicians here on how exactly to deal with the past. Then, fourthly, there have been UK measures that um, have dealt with accepted issues, issues that were never going to be devolved, like election rights, uh, national security issues, the law on terrorism. All of that is dealt with uh, centrally in Westminster and um, the, the, the protections such as they are accorded by those legislation, those, those pieces of legislation have benefited people in Northern Ireland just as in the rest of the UK. And then there have been measures taken on reserved matters, that's matters that could be devolved to Northern Ireland but haven't been or haven't been yet. So, so until 2010, uh, which was when criminal justice and policing were devolved to Northern Ireland, there were lots of measures passed at Westminster dealing with uh, the rights of suspects, the rights of defendants, the law of evidence, most of which were geared towards protecting people, including witnesses and victims. Uh, and still today, uh, amongst the reserved matters are things like the national minimum wage, which we have benefited from since 1998, surrogacy arrangements, consumer safety measures, data protection laws. We in Northern Ireland have benefited from those in the same way as people in the rest of the UK. And finally, there have been some measures passed by Westminster on matters that are transferred, but which have not been dealt with uh, by the Assembly. They've been dealt with on a UK-wide basis. For example, the Freedom of Information Act in the year 2000, uh, the Consumer Rights Act in, in 2015, uh, and there are lots of other examples that I, I, I could mention. So, taking all that I've just been talking about uh, 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 and, and recategorising those issues in terms of the types of rights protected, these 11 categories of rights have all been substantially enhanced since 1998. Even language rights, because of the Identity and Language Act, which has just gone through Westminster and will, when it's properly enforced, protect the Irish language and Ulster Scots to some extent. So what are the lessons we can learn from all of what I've just said? Well, firstly, politicians, whether they're here or in Westminster, can produce laws that protect our rights. There have been some difficulties, some totemic pinch points around issues like same-sex same marriage and abortion and trans rights and language rights. Uh, but we've got over those difficulties by having an, uh, legislation enacted at Westminster. We haven't got a Bill of Rights, which begs the question, do we still need a Bill of Rights, as it was referred to in the Good Friday Agreement? It is a very controversial issue. I, I've spent a long time myself arguing for a Bill of Rights, especially in the early years after the Good Friday Agreement, when I thought it really was necessary. I'm less enthusiastic today, A, because nobody can agree on what should be in a Bill of Rights. The more that the Human Rights Commission pushes the idea, the less in favour of it are the British Government and certain politicians in this area. And although the international community often talks about the need for a Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, it is curiously silent 
as to what the content of that Bill of Rights should be. And I would argue that a lot of what might have been in the Bill of Rights has already been legislated for through the measures I've just referred to. Uh, more needs to be done, of course, but still a great deal has been done. A major difficulty is that traditionally, and I'm not casting aspersions here, but traditionally uh, unionism has not been as much in favour of a human rights approach to things as nationalists have. Unionists tend to have a more limited conception of human rights. They're more suspicious of judicial activism in this area rather than having legislators produce the rights. And they're unhappy at people in Northern Ireland having a different human rights regime from the rest of the people in the United Kingdom. Nationalists and, to some extent, human rights activists, and I, I'm going to probably annoy some people in this room, I think sometimes overreach their approach to human rights by making the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, we could have had a Bill of Rights back in the year 2001 had people in Northern Ireland uh, gathered around the proposals issued by the Human Rights Commission at that time and presented a, 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 a united face uh, to the Labour government in London then. That might have just might have produced a Bill of Rights, even though it wasn't the perfect human rights bill that many human rights organisations in Northern Ireland wanted at the time. But uh, I am of the view that um, uh, the, the enemy, the perfect can often be the enemy of the good in this context, and we need to realise that. So to move forward, and picking up what Rory was referring to as, as, uh, it, it, when he referred to imagination, I think we need to, as it were, continue what we've been doing, but with increased imagination and flexibility, so that we can persuade, especially the unionist community and their politicians, that moving forward on human rights is not a negative. It's not something which will harm people. Quite the contrary, it will help society. And one way of doing that, I think, is to reframe human rights arguments in terms of social justice and fairness. Because if you ask the average layperson, I think that's what they would think human rights are. They're producing a more equal and socially just society and a fair society. And I, I'm pretty sure that unionists, as much as nationalists, are in favour of social justice and fairness and uh, equality. So those values can be protected by piecemeal legislation in the way that I've just been discussing, but also by, rather than having a rights-based approach, having a duty-based approach to all of these issues. Uh, so it's not the case that every duty has a correlative right attached, because the state can be put under duties and is put under duties which are not directly enforceable through the courts and don't have to be directly enforceable through the, the courts, but which can be um, implemented or the implementation can be checked in all sorts of ways other than through going, through going to court. So through inspection measures, we have a criminal justice inspectorate here, which has been a great success. We have the uh, RQIA, which has been perhaps more controversially 
less successful, but is still there uh, and has protected us against all sorts of types of unsafety, in, uh, lack of safety in the medical sector. Um, and there are various um, uh, monitoring and uh, investigative measures in place to help enforce duties on states. Take the emissions target legislation that was passed here in the Assembly uh, this time last year, just, just before it, uh, just after it, 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 the Assembly rose for the elections. It commits the executive here to reduce emissions by a certain target, uh, by, by a certain percentage, by a certain date. And that will be uh, achieved, hopefully, through uh, uh, plans that, have been, that are being issued and through regular monitoring. If it doesn't happen, if the targets aren't met, there's, there's no crime committed, there's no civil wrong committed, but there will be a great deal of embarrassment on the part of the officials and the governments, the, the politicians involved. But nevertheless, quite a bit will have been done to reduce emission targets and protect our rights to environmental safety. And that kind of model, I think, can be followed in other respects as well. We also, I think, need to indulge in greater um, engagement with civil society. I'm not a total fan of the civic forum that Rory was talking about, but I am a, a fan of involving civil society organisations and grassroots organisations in the development of legislation. In Scotland, they have been in the lead in this respect, I think. Am I over my time? Um, they have a national action plan on human rights and a human rights leadership task force. And both of those initiatives are encouraging the members of the Scottish Parliament and government uh, officials, civil servants, to uh, develop measures in an incremental way that will produce more social justice, equality and fairness. And I think that's what we should be doing here in Northern Ireland as well. We already have the Human Rights Commission doing excellent work in the area. Their annual statement on human rights on the 10th of December every year is an encyclopedic analysis of where we are in the human rights journey, so to speak. And the Equality Commission does excellent work in, in this regard as well. And the two of them together are doing work on how we, should, how we can and should preserve rights that would otherwise be lost to us as a result of Brexit. But one other thing that I think we could be doing um, is we could be setting up a human rights unit within the executive office here in the Assembly, uh, which would either keep an eye on the international monitoring that's going on, and there are, there's a total of 17 bodies internationally that are monitoring the human rights situation in Northern Ireland, intergovernmental bodies at the UN and the Council of Europe. If we had a unit in the executive office keeping an eye on all the recommendations and conclusions come out, coming out of those bodies and, um, and looking at them with a view to urging our politicians to develop laws here that will meet the recommendations and conclusions, or if we had a human rights unit which not even doing that, but was keeping it, its own eye on whether our human rights situation here is compliant with the international standard 
standards, regardless of what the other international monitors are saying. That would be a great help to, um, to the civil society organisations here and would lead inexorably, I think, to an improvement in the human rights situation. So, in summary, I think a great deal has been achieved, but further progress is needed, especially on better equality laws and stronger protection of economic, social and cultural rights. We need fresh thinking to encourage our politicians and others um, to uh, develop uh, ideas that will uh, produce a human rights result, though perhaps through a social justice and fairness lens. Insofar as there are, insofar as there are difficulties, we need a compromise approach to things. We have the Stormont House Agreement, for example, in 2014, which dealt with all sorts of human rights issues, welfare rights, identity issues, language rights, dealing with the past, etc. Uh, and that was a compromise between the politicians here. It all hasn't yet been implemented, but it, it's, it's still, parts of it are still there and, and, and could be used in the near future. Um, and I'm not going to repeat all the points there. You can read them from, for, for, your, for yourselves. Um, as long as a right is protected in some way, it doesn't really matter what, through which form it's protected, whether it's through a Bill of Rights, whether it's through a right, rights-based focus or a duty-based focus, it doesn't really matter as long as the end result is social justice. So I'll finish with that. Thank you very much.